13 minutes it is now after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment, uh, which we bring to you every Thursday here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, uh, we had a bit of a challenge last week. Uh, we were hoping to speak to my guest today, uh, but uh, we were unable to do so. And uh, it's a real pleasure this evening to uh, have as our Thought Leader this uh, Thursday, Associate Professor of African Politics and a Fellow at uh, St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Uh, and uh, he's part of the Department of International Development. And uh, Dr. Simukai Chigudu is his name. Doc, good evening to you and welcome to Metro FM Talk. And uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for, of course, uh, accepting our invite to come and uh, join us this evening. Good evening to you too. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I want us before, I guess, we get to, and, uh, you know, to the fascinating uh, piece that you penned for The Guardian. Um, it's probably now about two weeks ago to the day. Yeah. Um, before we get there, um, just briefly, who is Simukai? Uh, just your background. Uh, we had already indicated for, for, for the benefit of our listeners uh, that uh, you know, you're an associate professor at Oxford, of course, uh, uh, grew up in Zimbabwe and um, have been in uh, the UK for a considerable amount of time now. But uh, just briefly, your background and, of course, some of your own intellectual interests as well. Sure, sure. Um, so, as you said, I grew up in Zimbabwe, um, and I moved to the UK when I was 16. I kind of had a circuitous route, a meandering path uh, to Oxford, because I initially trained as a medical doctor um, and spent some time working in the UK's National Health Service. Um, this sparked my interest um, in understanding disease, but from a political and social perspective, particularly as I thought about how I would link my work as a medical professional um, with what's happening in Southern Africa. Um, mm. And so I decided to uh, study social science, uh, specializing in African history and politics, um, and have since uh, developed a research interest, primarily looking at the politics of epidemics and public health in Africa, mm. Um, and then, as I'm sure we'll be discussing, uh, a growing interest on questions of identity, memory, and colonialism. Sure, sure, sure. Let, let's start off, of course, on, on that score, of the politics of disease. I mean, no, no better time than the now to reflect just on what we yeah. faced with now. But uh, a big part of the work that you've done has been to reflect on the politics uh, of another pandemic, which is that of cholera in the context of, uh, you know, some of the uh, massive challenges faced by the Zimbabwean public health system. Yeah. So the story behind that is I was in my fifth year of medical school at Newcastle University in the northeast of England. And um, I remember picking up uh, an article in the New York Times. Oh. And the Times uh, article was titled Cholera Epidemic sweeping across a crumbling Zimbabwe. Uh, the opening line of that article said that five of the youngest members of the Chigunu family had died of cholera. Um, so, of course, the name kind of caught my attention and sent a shiver down my spine. Um, I quickly learned from the context that it wasn't anyone in my family. But as I read the article, it was talking about this harrowing disease causing so much devastation uh, in Zimbabwe. And yet... The reason that it gave seemed to me a bit superficial. We were being told that this you know, deadly infectious disease, this preventable outbreak, was all the result of the machinations of the Mugabe government. And I wanted to know much more specifically how all of this came about. 
Um, so many years later, when I did my PhD, I decided to write an in-depth analysis of that outbreak, trying to understand mm. the long and complex history that caused this to occur, trying to understand the failures of the Zimbabwean government, but also trying to understand how the international community also politicized the outbreak. So there's this real mm. connection between both my kind of personal journey, but also my intellectual interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mok- so Mok- I'm quite interested, I guess, you know, in, in how that specific work was able to draw out the links between contemporary public health care challenges, uh, but also, I guess, questions of coloniality, questions of, you know, um, I guess, the role of the colony in the provision of public health historically in settler colonies like Zimbabwe, South Africa, Mozambique, mm. Angola, and, uh, and elsewhere. Yeah, so the, the history of the kind of colonial provision of medicine is quite a messy one. Um, I think, generally speaking, the trend has been that colonial states really provided medical services uh, primarily for settler populations or to um, prevent uh, massive outbreaks uh, amongst the laboring population. So there was definitely a kind of built-in inequality to the history of medicine in Southern Africa. Um, Now, that did change over time, such that um, after uh, states in Southern Africa began to decolonize, there was an expansion of healthcare um, to reach, uh, you know, kind of mass populations who had been denied more comprehensive services. And at the Uh same time, that expansion was curtailed by things like structural adjustment, neoliberalism and the like. And so I think that the history of Southern Africa is one of very fragmented uh, health systems um, with quite built in inequality. And South Africa is probably the country that exemplifies that almost more than anywhere else where you have some of the very best medicine in the planet um, and also some very, very poor medicine um, in, in rural areas and poorer parts of the country. Mm, mm. And I guess, you know, um, sort of no more is, is, is that uh, a stark reminder than if we think about, you know, the context of uh, the supply constraints, in inverted commas, around the vaccine. And uh, yet some of that is being produced here in, in South Africa for export and mm. certainly raising some questions uh, about the provisioning in a context of a global pandemic that is, you know, affecting life and livelihood across the world. Um, you did say, Simukai, that, you know, some of your interests are in memory. Um, and uh, we, we're going to pause now and uh, take a quick break. When sure. we come back, I want us to confront the memory of Cecil John Rhodes um, and, of okay. course, the implications that that has for the contemporary present. We'll continue after this. 24 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, our Thought Leader this evening is Dr. Simokai Chigudu, Associate Professor of African Politics uh, at uh, Oxford University's Department of International Development and also a fellow at uh, St. Anthony's College at Oxford as well. And uh, uh, Simukai, I want us to, to maybe, you know, as we think about, I guess, some of the, the questions you raise around memory, identity, uh, to, to yeah. grapple with the person of, of Cecil John Rhodes. Um, and similarly, as I guess, uh, you know, many students in your generation and our generation have grappled with. Uh, and you say in, in, in your article, sort of written about, uh, or published about two weeks ago, that mm-hmm. Cecil John Rhodes cast a shadow over your life. Um, mm-hmm. And I think many people in South Africa would resonate with that. I mean, I, you know, if mm-hmm. I think about my own experience, you know, having grown up in the Eastern Cape, um, where effectively the Glen Grey Act 
uh, circumscribed mm. the economic options that were possible to African people, introduced a labor tax, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, did away with communal tenure and effectively entrenched segregation in that area. And you can still yeah. see the devastation brought about by, by that kind of politics and that kind of policy. Talk to me about how you grappled with, with roads in different contexts in Zimbabwe, country historically known as Rhodesia, uh, mm -hmm. then of course at the University of Oxford where he certainly sort of memorialized and symbolized um, in ways that are, I guess, divergent to our own experience of him as African people. Sure. I would say that there were kind of three major phases uh, of my life or my personal and family history in which I encountered the figure of Rhodes. Um, the first, of course, comes uh, from my father, who fought in the liberation war for Zimbabwean independence. Um, as um, will be well known in Southern Africa, the sheer scale of violence and brutality of that war was something that uh, you know, my parents' generation was subjected to. Uh, my father himself had been um, an exemplary uh, student in Rhodesia. He was admitted to the University uh, College of Rhodesia, but was expelled um, because he protested against institutional racism and uh, against white nationalism. This forced him into exile. Um, he later came back, uh, fought in the war, uh, endured imprisonment, um, and Rhodesian security forces uh, you know, physically subjected him to quite vicious beating, killed his father, i.e., my grandfather. And so there is this kind of familial history of fighting against um, the form of white supremacy that the Rhodesian state um, stood for and is, of course, founded in the image uh, and the vision uh, of Cecil John Rhodes. Now, when I was growing up, uh, particularly in the 1990s in Zimbabwe, there was a certain way in which this history was glossed over. We kind of uh, brought into the idea that we were a post-colonial society and that these questions of uh, racial division ha had somehow been overcome. The truth of the matter is that while formal colonialism had come to an end, many of the kind of cultural and racial artifacts uh, of colonialism continued to live on. Um, uh, I was lucky to go to a very good school, St. George's College in Harare, but when I arrived there in 1999 on my first day, I remember being shocked to see um, there was something called the Rhodes Scholarship and that the school mm. would proudly advertise students who had gone on to win this. And it seemed to me to be odd that I had grown up understanding the name Rhodes and Rhodesia as the kind of historic source of oppression and yet to arrive at an educational institute that seemed to celebrate this idea, effectively reframing the legacy of Rhodes um, as one of aspiration and of munificence. Uh, uh. And then the third phase, of course, has been at Oxford, where Rhodes exists. You know, there are professorships named after him. There is a Rhodes scholarship. Uh, there are Rhodes statues. But most uh, people in the university, most British people prior to 2015, never gave much thought to the historical figure of Rhodes at all. And so what you see is a very whitewashed and sanitized version of both who Rhodes was as a man and also about the, the system of settler colonialism that existed in Southern Africa. Uh, uh, uh. Talk to me about 2015. 
Um, I mean, you know, I've often argued that something, something shifted, uh, not just in South <laughs> Africa, not just in the Southern African region, but I think also, you know, it, in places like Oxford. Uh, not just mm-hmm. in relation to Rhodes, but any other person who has been memorialized in the fashion that Rhodes has. Um, and, and, and some of their stories have been sort of highlighted and unpacked in ways that really reveal their role, you know, in settler colonialism and mm-hmm. slavery um, and in the economic devastation that has been brought about in the third world. Where is, I, I guess, the, where's the metropole now in terms of grappling with some <laughs> of that history and some of those figures? This is a great question, and I would say um, that when the Rhodes Must Fall protests began in South Africa, it was actually quite amazing how rapidly they spread to different parts of the world. They really um, kind of lit a fuse that exploded at Oxford. Now, some of the reasons for this are kind of obvious. There were many people who studied at UCT, for example, um, as undergraduates and then went and mm. completed their uh, graduate programs at Oxford. There are many people sure. from Southern Africa more generally who end up at Oxford. Um, so we were kind of following those events quite closely. But part of the power of the framing of Rhodes Must Fall, like as a slogan or as an idea, was a way of confronting um, the remnants of empire in the contemporary period. It was a way of saying, you know, when we walk around, say, this university or the metropole more generally, and we see a celebratory image of empire, we know what is being uh, hidden from history and how this Mm. uh, both propagates a kind of um, mythology, a way of saying that Britain has always been a force for good in the world, uh, which denies how Britain made its wealth. It also denies how ideas of race um, and the supremacy of whiteness were kind of disseminated uh, through the kind of economic expansion of the empire. And so in 2015, those questions came to the fore. In Oxford, they were very, very badly received initially. Um, So I'll just give you a few uh, uh, quotes from public intellectuals at the university, but also in British public more generally, when roads must fall. Uh, So, for instance, um, one of the uh, principals of an Oxford college, Will Hutton, uh, wrote a piece in The Guardian, the national newspaper, to say that um, Cecil John Rhodes might have been a racist, but were it not for the legacies of the British Empire, then South Africa would descend into unaccountable despotism, uh, as embodied by Jacob Zuma. He then went on to write that it was empire that bequeathed to South Africa, uh, the rule of law, constitutionalism, democracy, freedom of speech, and freedom of association. Um, you know, one has to pause and ask what version of history this is uh. that seems to understand any notion of uh, political organization or any notion of civic processes as having had to have come from the outside, that Africans were fundamentally incapable of producing systems of governing themselves. And I think that's one of the most dangerous and pernicious myths of empire. Uh, And similarly, within the university, many professors were saying that Rosemont Fall was a dangerous attempt to erase the past. Um, Mm. And likewise, in the press more generally, those same sorts of ideas were being raised. And so there's this kind of theme that um, essentially Rosemont Fall students should know their place and they should be... should be grateful for all that Britain has given to them and to the world. 
Um, I think that conversation has started to shift, particularly in 2020, in light of the kind of joint force of um, anti-colonial student politics, as well as Black Lives Matter, um, and that the myths of empire are being challenged much, much more vigorously. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's it, fascinating, I guess, you know, reflection on that particular score. And I certainly wish we, we had a bit more time, but uh, unfortunately we have run out of time. But a last question on my end, you know, sure. if we think about that particular sort of decolonial project within the context of debates, for instance, here in South Africa around a national health insurance, um, mm. at a time where you have a pandemic which might have maybe sort of, uh, you know, uh, precipitated the introduction of that, probably, or elements of that much quicker than what would have happened. Mm-hmm. How do we make sense of the task of decolonizing, you know, our region and away from its history as, you know, settler colonial economies and polities towards mm-hmm. some form of framework that is able to make sure that if somebody goes to Krisani Parakwanath, if somebody goes to Pararenyatwa in Harare yeah. uh, or goes to a hospital in, in Maputo, that they're able to find something that is a, you know, a, a service that values life, a service that yeah. you know, is adequate enough to, to give effect to the rights to life. Um, how do we do that from a governance perspective in a way that allows us to look away from the metropole and look away from the settler colony? Mm, it's a great question and <laughs> very, very difficult to answer uh, briefly. Um, but I think that your question really points to um, essentially the scourge of inequality. And I think we need to come to terms with the fact that these deep uh, forms, these radical and extensive forms of inequality between the races, um, uh, geopolitically and socioeconomically, are historically produced. Um, They are not a kind of, uh, you know, random or natural way of being. And so that means that um, the governance challenge um, exists at both national level and, and, and even at global level. And it's the question of how do we ensure a system of the redistribution of wealth, uh, the redistribution of opportunity in a very material sense that begins to address these questions. And I think that this is a matter of reparation. It's a matter of historical justice, but it's also a matter of preventing the kind of... Um, uh, social clash and conflict that will inevitably arise when some people's lives are so deeply devalued against those of others for factors uh-huh. that have that are entirely to do with history. Uh-huh. Dr. Samukai, we'll have to leave it there and uh, a real pleasure catching up with you uh, this evening and uh, I guess uh, also uh, reminding us of um, the many unfinished tasks that lie ahead of us. <laughs> Uh, I really appreciate uh, that you could take time out to speak to us this evening and be our thought leader. Thank you very much. Great. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much.